Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. I was in Baltimore during the Freddie Gray uprising after the brutal murder of Freddie Gray when he was put in a police van, knocked around so much in the van, and beaten before he was put in the van that his neck was broken and he died. There was a large uprising from the community, thousands of people in the streets led by young black activists, then young black workers, joined by white students, and it became a serious spontaneous movement. In fact, there was very little organization. People just hit the streets. And the demands that came out of that movement to do with arresting the police that were involved, first of all, then civilian review of police, civilians on disciplinary boards, more training of police, community meetings with police. Well, all of that happened and nothing much changed. The basic role of the police in Baltimore and in most cities across the country is to act as a buffer between people that own stuff and people that don't and act as a hammer, especially in communities that are in deep poverty, which is much of Baltimore, but not all. So what would have changed things? Well, at the time, there was some discussion about community control of police, not just reviewing, not just oversight, but control. Now in the streets, a new demand has risen after the death of George Floyd, and that demand is defunding the police. And it's catching on in most of the cities where protests are taking place. It's becoming one of the principal demands. But is defunding the police enough? Does it really address the problem? Now joining us to discuss this issue from D.C. are Max Rameau. He's a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, a campaign strategist, an author and organizer with Pan-African Community Action, PACA. And Netfa Freeman. He's on the coordinating committee of the Black Alliance for Peace and an organizer in Pan-African Community Action as well, PACA. And they both co-authored recently an article and soon to be a book titled A Critical Analysis of the demand to defund the police. So, Max, kick us off. Uh, this this demand to defund the police has really caught on. You've got people chanting it in cities across the country. You have even some city councils uh, considering it. Bill, Bill de Blasio in New York at one point said he was supportive of it, but how much and what it actually means. But but you, you think there's real limits to that as a demand. What are they? So... If we remember back when uh, Michael Brown was killed and Freddie Gray were killed very close to one another, Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Freddie Gray in Baltimore, there were the same kind of uprisings that we're seeing today uh, and the same kind of um, uh, anguish and uh, uh, people being really uh, upset with uh, not only the specific case, but overall the oppression that Black people are facing in this country. And yet the demands that came out of that time were very different than the ones that we're seeing right now. Uh, the demands were, uh, please say this slogan, Black Lives Matter, which was an incredible cultural point, but it, it was not particularly effective as a demand. And then the other one was that police should be wearing body cameras. And so it really was giving we were demanding as uh, protesters, as organizers, were demanding that the state get the right to to videotape us all the time with every interaction, and then they could keep those videos, and, and we've had all kinds of problems with, with, with those. And now, fast forward five years, and the demand has leaped from repeat a slogan and the 
police should be wearing video cameras to abolition of the police. This is an incredible leap forward. Uh, so even though I have some uh, concerns that um, uh, that this is not where we should end up, that's what evolution really is about, is that there are constant changes being made, but that doesn't mean that this is the end. Uh, so I think evolutionarily, this is a tremendous leap to have happened in a really, really short amount of time. And that means, I think, uh, that we are headed for some significant changes and some uncompromising uh, movements in the very, very near future. In terms of what some of the limitations of it are, the real issue, at least uh, as far as I'm concerned, our organization, uh, Pan-African Community Action, uh, the real issue is not how much funding the police department gets, whether it gets too much or should get a little bit less or whether it gets should get none at all and then what should the alternatives be. The real question is who has power? Who is in control? And if we're not in control, then it doesn't matter if it gets a little bit of funding or a lot of funding. We're not in control of it. Uh, and we want to be in control of it so that we have the power to tell the the whatever the, the safety forces are in our society, in our community. We have the ability to say to them, this is what we want you doing. This is what you cannot do. And if you do those things that we don't want you doing, then you'll be out of a job uh, or you'll be arrested. Netfa, the... Uh in Baltimore, it was so much focus on the police during Freddie Gray. Um, and there was almost no focus on who's in control, who actually is was in control of city council politics, of state politics. Uh, of, and obviously, I'm talking about, you know, the, the one to five percent that actually own stuff and really dominate the politics of the city. Um, are you finding a change in that now? Or are people in the streets seeing beyond the police? Well, I think to some degree that's that's true, that people are seeing beyond the police. However, it's not enough. It's more than just like what Max and we are having to deal with the question of power and not abdicating uh, the decisions to those who, who have it, um, but also uh, saying that we actually be able to have the the control and the the ability to implement and enact certain things, our own uh, beliefs and our will and our plan, those kind of things, and then be empowered to uh, protect those kind of that implementation. And so, while uh, there's a little bit of understanding of that the um, that the the powers that be are the problem, like for example, and it's it's kind of easy to do, like for example, here a lot of the local in Washington D.C. where we are, um, that move that Mayor Bowser took to paint Black Lives Matter on the on the street and everything that wasn't lost on the, all these activists who've been trying to struggle uh, with that uh, the administration here, the local administration, to recognize the people who have been killed in Washington by police in Washington D.C. and recognize that it's the local uh, government and D.C. that have blocked their ability to get any type of redress or information around who uh, around the people who've been killed by police here. So they know that those 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 issues are uh, those gestures of painting things in the street are really just symbolic and meaningless. It might even have more to do with the local and federal contentions and uh, Democratic versus Republican type of contentions than it has to do with really getting them some redress. But we really have to have another type of transformation where we realize that if we're, unless we're organized and fighting for the ability to have more transformative or a power shift kind of demands um, and uh, structural changes that will give us the type of uh, ability to, to manage our own communities, then we'll just be you know appealing to the same powers that need the police 
uh, and appealing to them for some type of redress or restructuring the police, which won't, that just won't happen. Uh, Max, you, you've written in your article, community control over police must be the central demand of this moment. So w- what's the basic thesis of why that demand is transformative? Uh, that's the way that we shift power. So again, our main concern is not with the exact amount of funding, although we do have opinions about how much funding uh, one part of um, uh, of a society should get, a uh, public sector should get versus another. We think there should be more money spent to, on housing than there should be on uh, arresting people or caging people, for example. Uh, but we really, the, the core issue there is not uh, how much funding it gets, it's who's in control of that agency that does get the funding, however much their budget ends up being. And we think that uh, by uh, creating a plan uh, and a, a way of, of achieving community control over police, a real practical, pragmatic uh, plan for doing that, which we have done, then we think we can get to community control. And this would be a way of getting to community control that is limited. In other words, it deals with the police, but it does not deal with some of these other uh, entities of the government or the system as a whole. Uh, But it is also very real and very tangible and creates a direct line from impacted people, low-income Black communities in particular, and then inside of those communities, women, LGBTQ folks in particular, uh, it creates a direct line from directly impacted people to the uh, halls of power. Uh, And even though it is the halls of power just dealing with the police. And our theory is that once people taste a little bit of uh, what it feels like to be in control, to have power over the institutions that shape our lives, they're going to want control after getting community control. They're going to want control over the school system. They're going to want to have control over land. Uh, housing, farmland, public land. They're going to want to have control over the economic system. They're going to want to have to control over everything. That's really where we're going with this ultimately. Uh, But we think we can do that. Given how uh, important of an issue police brutality is right now, we think we can start with police brutality. Uh, Netfa, the uh, article connects policing to private property ownership. Uh, as I was saying in my introduction, uh, you could see it clearly in Baltimore, but you can see it everywhere. Uh, police are this buffer be- between people that own stuff and people that don't. And But you raise a very interesting question there, and this relates to some of the people that are talking about defunding and abolishing at this stage of things, that it might just give rise to private policing. Uh, what's, what's your point there? The analysis of it there is that the police, the emergence of the police, the creation of the police, or even the most, uh, the, the, the earliest forms of police were around private property and the ability to even protect the, the ability to protect that private pro- property uh, from those who didn't have. And in fact, the earliest forms, the property was African people, you know, and enslaved the slave patrols and the private security agencies uh, a little bit later are the earliest forms of modern, what we now know is to be police. And then all uh, a little time later, uh, transforming where they got together and realized, well, this could be uh, the, the state could run this institution and they would have re- also relieve those who are paying, the private entities paying for this protection, and they put the burden of that on the ta- on taxpayers, on public. Um, and then now what that did, it didn't change the essential function of the police, which is really when we say systems, we're talking about uh, white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy as the systems. Right now we're hearing systemic change, but the systems aren't being named. So the, the, 
police actually serve as occupying armies uh, to, protect, to protect that same relationship. African people, as a, as a result, black communities in the, in the United States are domestic colonies. And so the... Um, the, what happens if we're looking at the neoliberalism and the track of neoliberalism, the, the tendency to privatize things and doing uh, those kind of things really just falls into play with neoliberalism and austerity. Private police actually still exist. They've always coexisted with the, the public police. And now if we really just talk about um, defunding and abolishing the police, the, the ruling class will only revert back to the original formations of the the forces that they use to protect it there'd be nothing they would not just say okay there's no police they would actually there would actually be a different form of new police in the form of mercenaries that may most likely be even more vicious because they don't have any public accountability uh to to that they they have to adhere to they only have the only law and the only thing that they have to deal with are the bosses that hire them uh, Max, uh, you, you, as I said, you link this issue to the defense of private property, which I, I think is quite right. Uh, I once talked to a cop in Baltimore, and he said, what do, you, what do you want us to be? And by you, I take it he meant people that actually had power in the city. Uh, you want us to hand out flowers or you want us to be the hammer? And clearly, the elites want police to be the hammer. They, they don't like it when it gets so abusive that people rise up in response to it. But they want the hammer there because they want to contain uh, the consequences of poverty, which one of which is crime and domestic violence. They want that contained in the poorest neighborhoods. Um, but they're, they're in Baltimore, there most black families, most black people are workers. They do have jobs. Many live in relatively stable neighborhoods, and they're also threatened by the consequences of the deep poverty um, and the crime that outflows from those sections of the city. Um, and and some of the elites in Baltimore, not much, but some are black. Certainly, the political stratum elites are black. Um, and some of them have private property that they want to defend. So it, it's a complicated question. But even some of the activists in Baltimore uh, were very big promoters of black capitalism, black private property. Um, so it, it gets contradictory here. Um, does this suggest there needs to kind of be a more holistic approach as well in terms of dealing, obviously, with the poverty at the same time as the issue of community control of police? Uh, I don't think that it is uh, that contradictory. Uh, I think it's only contradictory if we're only looking at one aspect. In other words, if we're only looking at capitalism, but we're not looking at white supremacy or patriarchy, uh, or if we're only looking at uh, white supremacy, but not considering capitalism or patriarchy. And by the same token, if we're considering uh, only patriarchy, but not the other the other two, uh, capitalism or white supremacy. Then, then that seems uh, can appear to be contradictory because of the high correlation between race and class. Uh, but the really the issue uh, here is class. There's oftentimes some confusion and overlap between the two. Uh, and of course, there are times when wealthy black people, black people with 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 uh, uh, in a certain class position are also victimized by police brutality because race and class are conflated. Uh, 
Um, but overall, I think the real issue is that you're going to, anytime there's a group of people, anytime there's a class of people who have a certain interest uh, and they feel like that interest, in order for, for them to maintain their privilege or maintain their wealth, they have to prevent other people from realizing their rights, then you're going to have to have some form of of police in order to keep those who are being oppressed uh, from rising up against it. And that's not only so with people who have money and want to continue to exploit us and can only do that if we, if they have some way of, of preventing us from organizing or otherwise rising up. <clears throat> that's also true with men who want to hold their position over women. Uh, and that's why the police historically have, have uh, policed women's bodies uh, and kept them from moving where they wanted to, to move and doing what they wanted to do uh, with their bodies. Uh, so, yeah, I think all those things are, are in play and I don't find it contradictory. I think we just need to develop a comprehensive understanding of the three aspects of the system, capitalism, white supremacy and patriarchy and how they all work together. Well, I guess what I mean by contradictory or I mean, everything's going to be a somewhat contradictory, but in Baltimore, uh, sections of Baltimore, one of their complaints about the police is they don't get enough policing. I'm talking about black working class areas that look at the way white uh, areas, there's a fairly relatively smaller white working class in Baltimore. So you're talking about white areas that are more professional, somewhat more wealthy, uh, get all kinds of policing. Uh, and and in fact, Baltimore, if you're white, is probably one of the safest cities in the country. If you, The murder rate is almost one a day. It's like 348 murders in a year often. Uh, but less than three or 4% of that will be white people that are murdered. Um, sections of the black community, actually, it, it's contradictory for themselves because as you say, they are attacked for just being black, regardless of what their uh, economic situation is. So they understand the problem of the racist structure of the police. On the other hand, they want to walk to the store without getting mugged because there's such terrible addiction problems in the city and not being treated as healthcare problems. Yes, I hear that. Uh, uh, and uh, thank you for, for clarifying that. Uh, I, yes. So, uh, uh, of course, the fundamental root of what we call street-level crime, uh, as distinguished from other kinds of crime, uh, the fundamental root of, of street-level crime is poverty. So whenever you have poverty, you are going to have uh, people who want to eat or need to eat and who need some place to live uh, and who need clothing and who are going to uh, try to take something uh, from those who have, who are near them. Uh, and the reason why really low-income Black people, of course, don't steal from higher-income white people is they don't have access to those neighborhoods. Um, and uh, 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 so they end up stealing from people who they are near. And of course, that threatens the day-to-day -day security of um uh, of the of the of the low income black other low income black people who are in those neighborhoods, uh, we think a couple of things. One is that the real way, if you want to solve those problems, you really want to solve those problems. Now, if all you're trying to do is keep the people who have a little bit uh, feeling as safe as they can, then you can do that without solving the underlying problem of poverty that compels someone to steal for food. Uh, but if you really want to solve the the the, the problem, then you, we have to address the issue of poverty. And that is, again, tightly related to the issue of, of private property. Uh, and then the second aspect then is even 
to the extent that we have a transition period where we're trying to address the issues of poverty, but we're not quite there yet, then we have to have a safety force, a security force, or what we now call police force, although we think at the end we'd have to change the name of the force, uh, who can respond in a way that makes sense. Uh, someone who is hungry and who is stealing because they are hungry uh, must be put in a different position than someone who is stealing because they're greedy. Uh, and one of them is commit, considered a crime and one of them is not considered a crime. So we would want the forces to behave uh, and to respond accordingly and to, and to respond with some kind of care, with some kind of, of uh, compassion and dignity uh, for the person who is both a perpetrator in that moment, but also a victim in the broader uh, broader sense of things. And we'd like to be able to do both in the society that we will control. Netfa, what does the model look like? The community control of police? Yeah. Uh, basically, we're, we're talking about communities being organized uh, so that they can come together in people's assemblies or some type of uh, forums and, and those who participate in it. And we try to have some uh, some mass participation. There should be political education. We have to have ongoing political education. So we're understanding in detail a lot of the stuff that we've laid out just now, the implications of things. And then uh, we would those that those people's assemblies would inform a community control board that would be randomly selected and be rotating, be, have some temporary uh, uh, term limits. And then that community control board would break, would deal with the priorities and policies and the practices of the police. Um, and then so, yeah, on the day to day. And so that means they'd be able to hire, fire, determine the, the, uh, the who gets what the consequences are if something's wrong, um, put all those things in, into being, um, and then also determine how much money's spent, uh, all that kind of thing. And so basically, yeah, that's basically, we're talking about a participatory democracy model where there's everyone weighs in and then uh, uh, randomly selects, like much like a jury, uh, jury selection, people to serve on the control board and to execute the mandates of the people. Randomly selected or elected? We say randomly selected, we think is important, particularly in this stage and this con- the way the country uh, currently is. There's too much uh, disproportionate power and wealth to affect uh, that we see too much is in elections right now. They actually own and control elections because of their money. So we don't want a situation where, and especially when we're dealing with a lot of working class people who would like do anything, we don't want it to be co-opted. Um, and so if people are, uh, you know, uh, randomly selected one, it also gives equal, uh, equal access to everyone, no matter what. And, um, and so, uh, so, yeah. And so that's basically we say uh, randomly selected. Um, Max, doesn't that allow for randomly getting people that are completely unqualified to do it? That just because someone's a worker doesn't mean they're <laughs> qualified to run a, this kind of a body. Oh, of course. And so if you if if the if the argument is that randomly selected people are not qualified to make certain decisions, then we should today empty out all of the prisons and all of the jails because randomly selected, completely unqualified people are the ones who uh, give life imprisonment 
uh, to suspects who uh, against whom there's no physical evidence. Uh, they're the ones who let people go who have all kinds of evidence uh, against them. Uh, random selection, uh, random selection is the way jury systems in the United States are run. And if that's good enough to send someone, if those people are qualified enough to send someone to prison, then they've got to be qualified enough to say, this is my tax money. And if I'm going to be paying my tax money, this is what I want my tax money. This is what I want the people who are getting my tax money to do. Well, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the assumption should go the other way. Maybe juries aren't qualified to be sending people to jail. We're, well, we're down with either one. Like if you, if, if we choose one, if we say that, that this randomly selected people are not qualified to be jurors, uh, then I would accept that or uh, not qualified to decide how their tax money is spent. I'd accept that, but I'd say then those same people can't decide to go. Then that means anyone who's in prison now who was put in prison by some company completely unqualified people should be let out. Well, we know how manipulated juries get by prosecutors and especially, uh, you know, so it's it's not a good system. I don't think there's any question. But the point is that they have the power in spite of not having any um, uh, uh, any qualifications. Otherwise, they have the power to put people in prison and they're doing that right now. Yeah. It's, and look, and with, with terrible consequences. With terrible consequences. But in here, we're saying that uh, two things. One is that if they're if they're doing, if you're saying that they're okay, if the society is saying they're okay, to do one, then they should be okay to do the next. And the next is actually making decisions about how their own tax money is used. And if you're, if we're saying then they're not qualified to do that, to say, okay, this is my tax money. I'm going to pay someone to carry a gun in my neighborhood and give them the right to shoot people in my neighborhood. If they're not qualified to do that, then they probably shouldn't be qualified to vote either. And I think there's a, certainly a strong argument that people are qualified to vote based on the number of votes that Donald Trump has gotten. Uh, but I think we'd have to wipe the slate clean, which we're down with doing also, by the way. Uh, but whatever, as they say, was good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, if it's good enough to lock people up and it's good enough to elect Donald Trump, then it's got to be good enough to say, this is your tax money. These are people who are interacting with you. You have the right to to say this is the way they should be behaving and this is the way they should not be behaving. Well, let me let me argue with you here. I think it would be good to have a fight, an electoral fight. It it keeps the organ the organizing in the community going. Um, it, I, I can't see how this really works unless it's connected with a campaign to take over city council in the cities to elect progressive slates. Uh, you, you, you know, I would think you because I mean, what do police do? They enforce laws. Now, most of the laws are not created at the city level, and so this is clearly a problem with state and federal. But at least as a place to get started, if you can start changing the laws that the police are going to enforce. Uh, I think it's a critical piece of this, don't you? And if, and if you have to fight it out, uh, certainly with limits on maybe you, if you can get some power at city council, you could say nobody can buy TV advertising. You could have you know very serious ca- campaign kind of spending limits. But the, doesn't the community have to learn how to organize and win elections? Because in the final analysis, that is where power is. Well, it, right now, it doesn't look like that is uh, working too well. We have certainly have the, the at least on paper, have the power to do that now. And yet, I- even in areas where uh, when the electorate of that area, that city or that state is questioned and saying, do you want, for example, do, do you think people should uh, get security in their home instead of being evicted? Do you think people should uh, should get uh, the social security money that, that uh, is enough to live off of and things like that? The elect, even though they they say that they believe one thing, the elections turn out in a completely different direction. And that's because money 
actually controls the elections. So this would take the money out of the elections and uh, take the the democracy that we're now is given to someone, uh, the, the, the power of the vote that's given to someone in order to give a third party uh, power over them, they would be able to exercise some of this power uh, uh, directly. And I think it would, as soon as we recognize what having power meant in a real tangible way, as soon as someone, as soon as someone sat in the seat and made a decision and they saw that decision implemented, I don't think they'd be able to stop there. I think they would then, the very next thing they'd say is, we need to take over the school board. We need to take over the city council. We need to take over all these other areas as well. Oh, I, I, I don't have any argument about that. And, and I, we don't have to keep arguing about the randomness. But there are places, uh, as, as, as terrible on the whole, electoral democracy has been for people, and, and spe- especially for people of color. There have been recently some breakthroughs. And, and there, there may be, and I think partly because the technology has changed, the, the, the political system and the parties were never created thinking that people could raise money without billionaires, without the multimillionaire class or billionaire class, this ability to raise money online. I think it's changing things. Uh, and there's been some breakthroughs. I know in San Francisco, uh, because of the ability to have referendums that are binding, They've had been able to create uh, Medicare for all in the city. They've had free college education. Uh, there has been some breakthroughs in places. And uh, I think we're in a somewhat different time here, at least for now, as long as there still are elections. I mean, it may be once elections become really effective, um, we'll find you know martial law or something. I wouldn't rule it out. But I think it does have to be pushed to the limits. Well, I mean, I think that that's what we're suggesting is that we're pushing because one of the, the, the examples you cited about ballot initiatives and referendums are exactly what we're suggesting for the community control of the police to 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 get win community control over the police. And the other part is us being organized, the communities being organized, which you really think is the essential aspect of it. Um, that all the organ all the people, the particularly the most impacted, uh, adversely impacted people leading the uh, having formations that they lead and leading the whole struggle is really what transformed things. The other part about it in terms of elected officials, the way this country's sort of it's it's configured, particularly with the, the duopoly of the Democratic Republican Party, that those uh, parties are and individuals are run, you know, as individuals who actually accept money and they're not really beholden or accountable to anyone except for who can fund those campaigns. So right now we're suggesting that the participatory democracy model be exercised and that even if people do, you know, like uh, like I suggested, uh, opt for actually running candidates to further go beyond the issues of the police, then we actually see an alternative model that we're constructing uh, right there in the communities and the various communities, as opposed to what the structural issues that we have with the so-called democratic system here in the United States is beholden to to money and individualism and personality contests. Uh, Max, how does how does it work in communities or cities where the black population is a minority? Like in, in Baltimore, if you have the random method or even if you have an elected method, you're likely to get a majority black uh, control commission or whatever. You, I don't know. Do you have a name for what you call this or just the community control commission? It's the uh, civilian police control board. Right. Um, the But if you're in a city where the black population is a minority, and if this is a citywide random or elected, um, you're not, you're not likely to get 
a majority black control. So what's the, how does this structure work? So our proposal actually calls to divide the city up into policing districts. Uh, and so there's several cities where I think we have a good sense of where those districts uh, would be, but it, they could either align exactly with the existing political districts or wards, uh, or they could uh, differ significantly. Uh, but then those policing districts would be contiguous uh, and they would be they would be reflective of the social and economic uh, reality of that uh, of that city. Uh, so in Washington, D.C., we could probably uh, do it uh, along the lines of the eight current districts in Miami. We could do it close to the lines of the five districts, although I would do it a little bit differently uh, that, uh, than the ones that are there uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, and anyway, there's a number of different uh, combinations that can be used. And then we would call for the we would uh, call for a referendum, and then each everyone in the city, of course, would be voting. But each district would get its own ballot. The ballot would have the same question, of course: Do you want to keep your existing police force, or do you want to replace the existing police force with your own community-controlled force? And those districts that vote for uh, their existing police force, they like what they're doing. Great, keep them. Uh, you keep them. Uh, and then those districts, on the other hand, who don't like what the police are doing in their neighborhood. And you can imagine that in the same city, residents living in a wealthy neighborhood might like their police and residents living in a low income neighborhood might not like the police. Uh, then those districts would vote independent of one another. So in the same way that you have single member districts right now in most cities uh, where those who are living in District 1 or Ward 1 could vote for an elected official and those who are living in District 5 or Ward 8 uh, could vote for another uh, official, and the votes in District 1 have no impact on District 5, and the votes in Ward 8 have no impact on the votes in Ward 2, uh, uh, because each then has independence. So at the end, we could have in a city, uh, the city could maintain significantly uh, run by the existing police department, but it could also then have one or two districts that are run by this new community-controlled force. Uh, so the, the the way that that would be handled in terms of having not a high percentage of, uh, of, of black people in a city, in other cities like Madison, Wisconsin, or some other uh, cities, is that the way the districts are drawn up would then reflect the social and political realities of those cities. So it would wind up community control of the district. That's exactly right. That's, and that's what we mean by community. Community would have to be smaller than a big city. Like we wouldn't, we, you can imagine that, how unwieldy that would be in a city like Manhattan, for example, or in all of Brooklyn, uh, or even in all of Washington, D.C., for that matter. But there's still going to be a command, isn't there? I mean, you know, there's the logic of the elites, at the very least, the logic of private property. They're going to have to have a police force that can move from one end of the city to the other and, you know, organized resources and who's getting what right now even even in the district of course while the while district police or any in any city the city police are the police for the entire city uh there are stations and there are police districts and police generally stay inside of their own district they don't cross across the district they're responsible for patrolling and responding to calls in their district in addition most cities have more than one police department washington dc has 33 separate police departments. And some of those the police departments have jurisdiction over all of Washington, D.C. Some of them have it only over a certain territory. So, for example, the Park Service only has jurisdiction over the parks, over the federal parks that are in Washington, D.C. There's a railroad police department that only has it over the railroads. Uh, and there are some police departments that have 
uh, jurisdiction over a broader area than just D.C. So the federal government, the FBI, et cetera, they all have uh, a jurisdiction over a much broader. So going to a city and saying, look, these are the boundaries of this uh, city, then that would it seems like that wouldn't be a difficult Thing to do. Most cities also are encased inside of a county, and the county often has more than one city in it. And therefore, the county police, generally speaking, have jurisdiction over the entire county. But as a, again, as a general rule, don't police inside of a city that has its own police department. So you can think of the city then would basically look like a county where it would have general jurisdiction over the entire city, but wouldn't be responsible for policing over those police districts that have their own independent community controlled force. Uh, Nedva, one of the things that impressed me about the document that you both wrote is the uh, how you've traced this issue of policing to private property and to the you know the whole relationship of who owns stuff and who has power how, how do you encourage more of that kind of discussion and consciousness into the movement that's taking place now oh well, i think it has to do with what you know writing papers like this and then uh, engaging the the, pe- the people around the ideas and have developed some kind of critical analysis of it and pan african community actually we have we hold community uh what we call a status Shakur study groups that are open to the community. Right now, we've had to do them, we've had to revert to doing them online. But those type of things, and then having topics around where people uh, are able to, you know, see more clearly the issues uh, interconnected uh, with this, with this, with community control of the police or policing in general or power in general. And so, political edu- mass political education basically is it, and having things where people actually can uh, exercise their own. Um, thought processes and not just be told what to, you know, what to think about things. But that's, that's essentially it. And then we also have to engage in media campaigns, broad-based media campaigns, uh, doing this radio show or doing, you know, social media and, and, and having people be having to look at and be introduced to certain ideas um, uh, is the first step in doing that. And then actually advocating for political education is an essential part of, of the movement. Uh, Max, uh, when I in Baltimore with the Freddie Gray uprising, um, the elites were able to give a few concessions. They arrested the cops, charged them. There was a lot of talk about police reform. There was a DOJ uh, investigation of the Baltimore police. <clears throat> the actual investigation was actually quite good, the report they wrote, I thought. It said that not a day goes by where the people of the, of the poorer communities and working class communities in Baltimore's constitutional rights are not violated. Um, but there was no second act to the movement. There was no de- next demand. Um, do you think what's happening now, do you see a second act, a third act? Is there, is, is this, is there a direction or will there be some compromises and it kind of get all assumed in the, I guess, in the November elections? So we wrote a piece after the Ferguson uprising and right at the beginning, right in the in the beginning and in the midst of the Freddie Gray uprising uh, called Forward from Ferguson. And we talked about what urban rebellion was and what the role it had in the movement and what other parts of the movement were and said that we're really looking at three phases here. The first is just raw outrage. And that outrage is what most people call riots, what we would call rebellions. Uh, and that is spontaneous uh expressions of outrage, not only at the specific 
uh, incident of the murder of Freddie Gray or of uh, Mike Brown or of George Floyd, for that matter, or Breonna Taylor. Uh, uh, but there was a uh, uh, there was a raw outrage, and that is uh, has a particular type of expression, uh, and that's by people who are really angry, but may not uh, be that well connected to organizing or to what movement building means. Uh, but then that, by necessity, <clears throat> uh, uh, has to evolve into something else, and that something else then is attaching to that anger a list of of things that we are opposed to. Uh, we are opposed to police brutality. We're opposed to mistreatment of, of people. We're opposed to the people's rights getting uh, violated. And that led to the second phase then, which was mass mobilization. And mobilization is a particular type of thing. And usually it's characterized by making a list or whether it's one thing or a series of things that we are against. And then we mobilize in order to put pressure on those who are in power to tell them this is what we're against and we want you to change that that we are opposed to. And that's mobilization, and it reached that very quickly. Uh, and the real question was for us then, and remains today, is do we get then to the third level of uh, evolution? And that is towards organization. And organization would not just be identifying those things that we are against, but clearly envisioning, articulating, and fighting for those things that we are for. Not just mobilizing against something that we disapprove of, but organizing towards something that we want to see come into reality. And that is what we think would be represented by community control. Not just saying that we don't like the way police handled this particular investigation and we want them to do, do it differently in some abstract sense, but saying specifically, here is a, a, a system that we want to put in place that would put us in charge of the forces that are uh, walking around our neighborhood of the forces that are impacting our lives. If we can't get to the to evolve to the level of organizing, up from uh, mass rebellion, uh, uh, up from even mass mobilization and into mass organization, then we're not going to be able to turn some of this raw anger into real uh, uh, changes that shift power, that take power from those who have it now and who use it to oppress us, and into our hands so that we can free ourselves from from oppression. Netva, Max, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.